Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast. Podcast. Where we talk about things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 25. This week, it's Terry's turn to share something that she's found interesting. What have you got for us today, Terry? Well, Daisy, I think I promised this in our episode of us reflecting back on the last half of our previous episodes that I wanted to do a second or a part two of an episode about Marissa Peer's work. The main part of this comes from the same podcast episode with Lewis Howes, but I listen to her quite a bit on her own YouTube channel, on Mind Valley, and other sources. So we'll share some of those in the show notes as well. But I realized after the last time we recorded an episode about her, I didn't finish some of the things I wanted to share. There's so much. And again, these are basically themes that you'll hear in most of her work. Yeah, you said that afterwards. Yes. I wanted to include this bit and I wanted to include that bit. That's right. Well, you've already gone over time, Terry, so you're going to have to put it in another one. (laughs) And it even dawned on me days later. I'm like, oh, I didn't talk about that part. She has some themes that I think are really important. So I want to go back to the idea that she emphasizes a lot that our brains respond to the words we use and the pictures. So the mind follows your words to make a blueprint of what it is supposed to do. So choosing how we talk to ourselves and the images that we give our brain is so important. One of the things she talks to is that you are drawn to what you focus on. So if you're someone who pays attention at all to law of attraction, it's exactly what this is about. But the things that we focus on, we create energy toward and and we wind up getting more of it. And she talks about how potential expands as you move forward. And this ties back in with an early episode we did with a man named Andrew Huberman. I will probably do at least one more episode on some of his work. So one of the things she emphasizes is the idea that our brain is wired toward that which is familiar. And so if you think about that then, the messages we want to be giving our mind, we need to make more familiar. And the things we don't want our mind to be hearing and paying attention to, we need to make unfamiliar. So she talks about making the positive familiar and the negative unfamiliar. And for many of us right now, that means making what is familiar unfamiliar and making what is unfamiliar familiar. And one of the things she highlights the most with this is the idea of praise, self-praise. And for so many of us who are struggling, um, lack of confidence, lack of self-worth, if you recall, she's the one that talks so much about I am enough. Mm. If we're struggling with that, one thing we can do is to incorporate self-praise. And again, for many of us right now, that's unfamiliar. And we need to make that more familiar and we need to do that often. It also ties in with what several authors who write about habit change. So James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, and B.J. Fogg, who wrote Tiny Habits, Mm. both talk about the need to celebrate things as we go. And so again, I see this as self-praise, letting yourself know, nice job, Daisy, that was good. Awesome, you did that today. 
giving yourself positive feedback for what you're doing, that we really need that praise coming from ourselves to help reinforce feeling good about ourselves, acknowledging our positive and experiencing more of a sense of worth. She also talks about making words that are heavy with emotion. Think about those. If they're negative, find less powerful words to elicit less emotion. So if we use an example like, this meeting was horrible. It's already a negative emotion that we're having about it, but we emphasize the word that it's horrible and we, we make it so much bigger than it needs to be. Or if someone talks about a performance or a meeting or an interview and they talk about it being a terrifying interview, that emotion created is so strong that it's going to taint the way we experience it. And on the flip side, when we're talking about positive things, this is when we should use the really powerful big words. I don't mean big words as in length of words, but emotional impact. So to say, it was an amazing trip. It was a phenomenal experience I had going to that event and really highlighting the positive. So let's say, for example, you went to see a movie and you didn't think the movie was very good. And someone said, hey, Daisy, you know, how was that movie? Rather than saying, oh my gosh, it was the worst waste of money I've ever spent. It was horrible. The producer should be taken away their rights to produce films. <laughs> That's creating a lot more negative energy around this. Rather than to say, you don't have to lie to yourself, but to say, you know, I, I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't what I was expecting. And it, it just wasn't as good as what would really hold my attention. Notice I have less tension. I have less animation about me when I say those words. And then again, when it's something positive that we really highlight that, reinforce the positive. How was dinner with your friends? It was great. It was the best time getting to see them. This is not the time you want to say, yeah, it was kind of nice getting to see them. It, it felt okay. So we want to really think about which emotion we want to be creating and being drawn more toward. That's really interesting, the idea of overplaying the positive, downplaying the negative. And it's actually an episode that I want to use at some point, but it was an episode of Wrong and Chatterjee's podcast, and I've forgotten the name of the guy. He's been on a lot of podcasts recently. He's a monk Shetty, mm -hmm. Jay, Jay Shetty, Shetty. Mm -hmm. yeah, and he was talking along similar lines. What reminded me was when you were talking about having dinner with friends, and he was talking about giving thanks, giving praise, being grateful. Quite often, the whole sort of gratitude exercise mm -hmm. comes back into my mind when you're talking about things and when you're talking about bigging up the positive and dampening down the negative a bit. I think about that reframing that I did with the gratitude journaling of looking for the positive in something. But he was saying to Rongan, so if you'd had, you and your wife had had a party and you got thank you texts from a couple of your friends and friend A sent you a text saying, oh, thanks for the party. Yeah, it's nice, but 
Friend B sent you a text. Thank you so much. That was a brilliant evening. You put so much effort in. I enjoyed it so much. I particularly enjoyed those nibbles you made. Could you possibly send me the recipe? It was just brilliant. Thank you so much again. Which is the one that is going to stay with you? Which is the one that's going to give you the most joy? And he was basically just saying to you, one, about accepting things like that, but two, to kind of think about when you want to give that praise. And so it just reminded me about the positive. It's not only bigging up the positive, but maybe to dig in a little bit to pull out a detail, because when you do that, you have to kind of really think about it and attach. It just attaches better, not only the big emotion, but something quite specific. Absolutely. And think about when it's negative. Let's say you got feedback on a project you had done and someone said, you know, it didn't quite meet the mark of what we were looking for. There's some revisions that need to be done versus this was horrible. Not sure that you're even able to complete the task as needed because this was the worst example of work that we've seen. The impact of that much emotion. Mm. Which one of those are you going to carry? And you're going to carry something really negative with you. I like the words you're using, dampening, downplaying, making the negative less powerful by choosing different words and making the positive more powerful by the words we choose as well. Mm. There's really an art to this, I think, and it's something that we can start practicing. Mm. That's the other thing about it, that it gives you something practical, especially when you're applying to yourself. And so many people, I think both of us included, find that really difficult. You know, think like that about yourself. Mm -hmm. But if you actually think about it as a bit of an exercise, find something to praise yourself about every day. However small it is, it doesn't matter. You've got to tick that off every day something to praise yourself by. Get used to doing that for a week. Week after that, okay, you've got to ramp it up a bit. You've got to get more enthusiastic about it. If it's something that becomes quite a practical exercise, but you can sort of build on it, I can see that being a little bit easier to do than just trying to big up the positives about yourself in some kind of sort of arbitrary Mm -hmm. way if you find it really difficult to do. And I think we've talked about this before. I am into using words that are at least neutral at first, Mm. that are moving toward positive so that the more positive become more real and congruent. You call it a bridging technique Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Now, Marissa Peer is not in favor of that. She does not (laughs) use those wimpy words. She (laughs) uses the powerful ones. It's extraordinary. I have amazing memory power. Rather than saying, I forget things sometimes, she would say, I have an extraordinary memory because that's what it tells your brain to pay attention to. I have so many coping skills. Oftentimes, you know, in therapy work and now in coaching work, people will highlight being unable or feeling unable to cope. And Marissa Peer would have them practice, I know many coping skills that I can use at any time. The more your brain hears that, the more at ease it's going to have to access coping strategies. Interesting. So again, the word choices make such a big difference. 
She also talked about, again, around emotion, and she talked about emotion and logic. When we are working toward a goal and there's an emotional response or that is elicited and there's a logical, I think oftentimes we want to go with the logic. So let's say, for example, you and I have been talking prior to recording today, talking a little bit about food and health. If I say that I don't want to become diabetic again, that's my logic. And I know that eating a particular sugary substance puts me at risk for that. That's the logic that tells me I shouldn't eat that. But my emotion that says I feel good when I eat that, I feel comforted and I feel soothed and I feel good. She says what we often try to do is we try to outlogic the emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think I've heard myself do that as a coach and as a therapist, try and get people to keep going back to the reasoning. Mm, your why. Focus on your why. <laughs> yeah, which I still believe in. Mm-hmm. But in these moments of decision making, she said the emotions almost always win. Mm. So what she encourages you to do instead is focus on the emotion tied with that logic. So I'm going to feel so good when I'm eating well and not diabetic. I feel so secure and proud that I'm not diabetic. So you're still going to focus on emotion, but you're going to shift over to the emotion that aligns with the logic that you want to reinforce. And then the next part that she talked about, again, kind of thinking about human survival. She talked about our quest really is to find connection because connection, community, especially ancestrally, was survival. Mm. Safety-wise, gathering food-wise, you had more resources if you were in connection with others. And therefore, it was really important to avoid rejection. If you were out of your clan or tribe or whatever, your group, your community, you risked extinction more so. Mm, vulnerable, yeah. So we have a, a drive toward connection and a fear of rejection. And so one of the things she talked about, and I'll bring this up again in a moment because it fits in with another part, is one of the things that we all could benefit from is really reworking the idea of rejection in our mind. What does it actually mean for us? It is difficult. It can be painful, but that it's not life-threatening. So again, I used this example last time we talked about her episode, but if someone says, that breakup, when my marriage ended, I couldn't do that again. That was horrible. It almost killed me. We are making that what feels like rejection feel so life-threatening that we will avoid it. And that means we won't make connection again. We will prevent ourselves from being able to connect again. And so by making rejection more as something that we can learn from, that was necessary, we can then not have to go into that place where our brain is going to have to protect us from it. The other piece that Marissa Peer shares in most of her work, you will find clips about success, how to achieve what you want. She'll talk about abundance, things like that. But she has a a list of four or five things that she talks about tied with when people 
achieve what they want and feel successful. And these are the tips that she provides for that. She says that people who are successful or feel successful about what they're doing, they do what they don't want to do first. Hmm. And the flip side of that is also they do what they don't want to do. Now, I think this is an important topic because sometimes people also believe I should never have to do something I don't want to do. I don't think any of us should have to live a life of daily, all day, every day doing things we don't want to do. That's not a quality of life. But if I want a certain outcome, there are likely things associated with it that are things I don't enjoy or struggle to do. And so again, she encourages do those things first. She also talks about people who are successful take action every day in the order that they're headed. So whatever they're aiming toward, they take some steps toward it every single day. She says people that are successful, they don't take no for an answer. Hmm. Now they can reframe it as it's a delay rather than a denial. Okay. Yeah. And she uses examples of series, television series, um, movies, performing groups that you know, they didn't win the competition. They didn't get accepted by the studio the first three times they pitched the idea. The record label turned them down. If they had taken no for an answer, they would have stopped there and never reached their bigger goals. And so not taking no for an answer is one of her big keys with that. And again, people who are successful find a way to come back from rejection so again, when you don't win that award. I was going to say that ties into the mm-hmm. one before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, make it so that it's not life-threatening so that it's just something learned. It's an opportunity. I got to go to that interview. I didn't get that job, but it taught me some things I need to know for my next interview or my next job. So these are really important things, I believe, to help us achieve our goals that we can let any one of these things defeat us and make us stop in our pursuit of things. But if we go back to thinking about what we're saying and how we're interpreting things, we have kind of unlimited ability to achieve what we want. Mm. What was that quote from the Marie Forleo episode about failing? Oh, right. She said, either I win or I learn, but I never lose. Ah, that's it. Yeah. That seems to be on the same line of thinking. It made me think of that straight away. Mm -hmm. So again, not taking it as rejection or no, Mm. meaning stop here. I've lost. This is the end of the road. Quit here. Mm. What did I learn? What did I gain? How do I move forward? Because there is almost always something to learn. And most, most people will give you some kind of feedback from that kind of experience, from the kind of experiences that you've been referring to as an example, you know, going for an interview, going uh, for a, a music tryout or whatever, an acting job, whatever it is. Usually, if you ask them why you didn't get the part, they will give you some kind of feedback, mm-hmm. which is of benefit to you because it's something that you can then go and use to add to your skill set or you can 
find a way of applying that to yourself or you can decide that okay so that kind of role is not for me but because I'm not going to be able to manipulate what I can Mm -hmm. do or learn those new skills but I can take this slight different direction instead there's there's never really something you can't learn from a seemingly negative experience is there Mm-hmm. That gets you further towards your goal, which is what Marissa Peer is saying, not taking no for an answer. Absolutely. And I think, I can't remember the specifics right now, but several musical groups that I used to follow in my earlier years, they had originally started as maybe a rock artist, then it didn't work well, mm. rock and roll. And so they transitioned over to country music and learned that was more what fit for them. And they were very well received there. But had they just stopped with the initial feedback, no one came to their concerts or no one bought it versus no, we've got talent here. We're not in the right vein yet. Let's find where we can find our, our audience. I think is really important. Mm. So I think when I think back to all of the messages I get from her, and again, I listen to her stuff often, the one that really stands out to me about this that I carry with me from what we've talked about today is the familiar versus unfamiliar and flipping them. And again, you and I were just talking about some food and eating habits and behaviors. And I think this is a great example of where both of us have worked to make eating certain things that was so familiar to us to make that behavior unfamiliar to us now. And one example is we were just talking about earlier today, diet soda. I used to drink diet soda all day long. I would go to bed with a can of it on my nightstand and drink it as soon as I woke up in the morning as well. That was what was so familiar. It was a part of my every activity. And now it is so unfamiliar to me. I haven't had it in over four years and it's completely unfamiliar. So it doesn't even activate in my brain anymore. And you and I discussed some other examples of that. So making something that's problematic and familiar, making it unfamiliar to us and vice versa. Yeah, and it's how you go about it. I know when you started talking about it at the beginning and I thought, yeah, that makes total sense. But how do I do it? How do I make the familiar unfamiliar and vice versa? And I think it depends to a certain extent on what you're talking about, I guess. And with something more tangible like that, yeah, we were talking about the diet soda. We were also talking about the experience I've had recently with sweet tastes in general and going sweetener free from the beginning of September and getting rid of that habit, that anticipation of something sweet, basically after, certainly after my evening meal, often I would want it after breakfast as well. But I was generally habit formed enough that breakfast was just a savory thing. But after dinner, I would want something sweet. And quite often if I had a lot of that sweet thing in stock, like I'd made some ice cream or something, I would potentially have it at other times of the day as well. And breaking that familiar was very hard. And the only way to do it was complete abstinence and to get through 
that first period of time where it was really difficult. But actually now at almost two months, what was familiar has become unfamiliar. And what was unfamiliar, which was the thought of going a day without having something sweet after dinner, was kind of unthinkable, was the unfamiliar. But Mm. that is now the familiar. That is now my new normal. Absolutely. And so that's making that change. The way that I can see it being more difficult is applying it to the emotional stuff. And that's where I picked up early on with trying to take something practical as a way of of applying that change, of changing the familiar to unfamiliar and, and back the other way, when it's a way you think about yourself, because that feels so automatic to maybe automatically think negatively about yourself. Well, how can I stop doing that? What can I do practically to change that? I feel like you almost need some kind of sort of practical formula. That's why I kind of leapt on that praising thing and maybe having to build it up or do a Marissa beer and go straight in there. I must admit, I sort of cringed away a little bit from that, having to be over the top in praising yourself. I naturally (laughs) recoil a bit from that. (laughs) So how can we sort of practically apply changing those sort of automatic Mm -hmm. emotional type feelings about ourselves if we struggle with that? I think similar to what you were describing about food, I think making positive self-statements more familiar, it might be like your journaling activity, the gratitude journal. It might be every day I'm going to highlight two things that are positive about me. Mm. They don't have to be huge, gigantic things. They can just be, you might say, I'm a really good dog mom. I really take really good care of my dogs. That's praise. That's self-praise. And I think the more familiar you make saying positive things and thinking positive things of yourself, the more the more grand thoughts won't feel incongruent Mm. because you'll move toward a more positive way of seeing yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing I was going to mention about something else I shared today is doing the things you don't want to do first in order to achieve a goal and going back to the idea of emotion kind of winning out over logic. I think another practical thing we can do with these examples is to frame these things in our mind as a choice. Because when we have chosen something versus feel like it is something we just have to tolerate or it's something put upon us by someone else, feeling positive about it, tolerating it is more difficult when we feel like it's been put on us versus when we can own it as a choice, we're more likely to be able to find some positive in it. Mm. And she goes back to an example when she was writing her book and staying up late at night while everyone else was sleeping. And she started thinking about how successful her book was going to be and how people were going to read it and benefit from it. So it was her choice to stay up late working on this. It was her choice to write a book. If I want to wear a certain size jeans and I'm looking at a food item that's very tempting and very problematic for me, I have to really focus on this is a choice. I value wearing those jeans. I like wearing those jeans. I love how I feel when those are the jeans that feel good on my body. 
that can help make the decision not to engage with that food more easy. It's funny, as you were saying that about the do the things you don't want to do first, I was about to say, so how are you going to do that if you have a rebel tendency? (laughs) How are you going to persuade me to do that if I have a rebel tendency? And then you said, make it a choice. And I was like, ah, okay, yeah, that's how you do it. And funnily enough, Gretchen Rubin uses an example for that. And you can use that. Rebels will get around this having to do something they don't want to do. If it's a choice, she uses a couple as an example where one of them has asked the other to take the bins out every week. And the one whose task it is to take the bins out every week is the rebel. And they say, I don't take the bins out every week because you've asked me to. I choose to do it because I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they can, that's one of the sort of workarounds mm-hmm. for a rebel who naturally resists having to try and do things they don't want to do because rebels don't do mm-hmm. what they don't want to do. They rail against that unless it's a choice they've made. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and so technically finding a reason you want to do it. Yeah. I don't want to drive the speed limit. And I know you talked about this as mm-hmm. an example, but if I don't want to drive the speed limit, but I really dread getting tickets or risking harming someone, mm. I will choose to drive within the speed limit. Right. There's a big difference of I have to do it just because someone told me to versus, no, I'm choosing this. This feels right to me because I have a reason that it's important. Mm. It's a great distinction. So in wrapping up this week, Terry, I think we've addressed things as we've gone through really with some practical tips and and comebacks to things you've suggested and different workarounds and different suggestions for how people can apply things at home. The thing that I'm going to try and do more of is big up the self-praise. I have got a bit better at it. I'm a Brit. I naturally recoil from these things. (laughs) I think I'm going to find some way and I haven't decided which way yet. As you know, I'm a rebel, so I can't tell myself which way. I'm going to have to wake up tomorrow and decide which way feels right. (laughs) But I think something along the lines of what you suggested and just trying to think of a couple of things every day that you know, that I feel like I deserve a pat on the back for. However big, however small, it will depend every day. But that's just something I'm going to try and think to myself every night, I think, and and try and get into that habit. Nice. And I'm going to leave today with a quote from Marissa Peer. She says, your words shape your reality. Have better words, you'll have a better reality. Nice. I like it. So on that note, I know your week in reality is going to be amazing. And I hope everyone at Holmes is too. Thanks, Daisy. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. 